You're listening to The Dad Project. I'm your co-host, Rhonda Elizabeth, and you can't hear the birds outside of my window. Because you closed the window as I requested. I follow and I am your co-host, Aaron Stallworth. This week, we're bringing to our podcast our very first book talk. In case you missed it, The Dad Project has a book club called TDP Be Reading. TDP Be Reading. I should highlight that the book club was Aaron's idea and it's gone so well. It is another space to explore the people and ideas that we discuss in our podcast, Education, Politics, Love, Justice, Culture. We read classics like The Miseducation of the Negro, which we're highlighting today. TDP Be Reading also provides my needed motivation for meeting those reading goals because the struggle is real sometimes. Sometimes it beats like that. The struggle is real, but we are persistent. Three live book talks and can't stop, won't stop because reading is fundamental. And we're all about meeting you where you are and recognize that not everyone is on the ground. So we're sharing our book talks here on the podcast and on our YouTube channel. We hope you enjoy this talk on Woodson's seminal work and shout out to my friends who be listening to TVPB reading. So for May, our choice for May weaves history, poetry and personal reflection in Breathe, A Letter to My Sons by Imani Perry. The book talk will be on IG Live per usual, Sunday, May 23rd at 5 p.m. Eastern time. We have two special guests joining us, Brittany White, a makeup artist, globetrotter and mother of two and Linda McGee, a psychologist specializing in adolescent mental health and a mother of one. Both are mother of sons. So please do a couple of things. In addition to listening to other podcasts from The DAP Project, please shop local. We've named a few local bookstores in the show notes. Please subscribe to our newsletter at thedapproject.com and please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars. Got to get those five on it. Resistance is a highway with many lanes. We hope you find yours. Take care, folks. What are we doing here today? Why are we on IG Live on Sunday at Apple? We're doing a book talk. What? We're talking about books. Your thing. If we're talking about books, bro, this is your thing. So I just have to explain to our viewers that um hey mr green mr green is my neighbor hey mr green what's up i could actually wave <laughs> out the window to say uh to say hi to him so we're here with our first book club meeting of the dat project be reading tdp be reading and here's the backstory so aaron knows um michael Varner here knows that i love reading and he surprised me and he was like hey you want to do a book club in 2021 in the new year and i was like what are you kidding me i said i would love to do a book now it didn't quite go that way because i thought it did. i, I suggested it, it and, well it went that way but oh, okay. we have to give the backstory of how much you dog me for not for having so many books for not, <laughs> for not reading any of them it's, you know you know, as folks can see, or as is shown in this camera angle a few books in my background i've probably Read in the entirety this one. <laughs> <laughs> but I love books. Um, as you know, I got into reading um, really off of one of your suggested books. Uh, what was this back in 2016, 17? Mm -hmm. You suggested Trevor Noah's book, mm -hmm. uh, Born a Crime. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll check it out. I think this is one of our. To be honest, as important as that book was for you, I don't remember. I vaguely remember suggesting it because I remember reading it and loving it, but I vaguely remember suggesting it. Yeah, well, I read the book, and Trevor Noah, of course, we know Trevor Noah, Daily Show comedian, but he grew up in South Africa, as we also many of us know. But what was so amazing about that book is how his life, growing up in South Africa, seemed to really be somewhat parallel to my life growing up in the south of, of growing up in texas so that was meant from the church life to how his aunties were to you know all those things it, it was very similar and so i loved that book and then a friend of mine gave me another book right after that um queen sugar i was already a fan of the show and so i read that book just like that 
And so, but this again was 20, I think 17 or 18. I read 10 books, Rhonda. Prior to that, I didn't do very much reading since college. (laughs) (laughs) But I read 10 books in one year. Uh, You know, so reading, reading is fundamental. And I'm but super fe- proud of you for your 10 books. But I fell off for three years after that. So now, <laughs> <laughs> but now you're back. Did that really dog you out for not reading? Kind of, it, it was some side eye action going on. Whenever I, yeah. Yeah. Whenever you were see, whenever I said, Ooh, I got a new book in the mail, you'd be like, whatever. You're not going to read. Because, bro, you don't be reading your books. <laughs> you're like quick to buy, slow to read. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> But that being said, there are a number of folks, I think, who um, who choose to uh, buy books but don't always read them. As many books as I buy, I probably, if I buy 10 books, and I definitely read like five of them. Mm-hmm. So um, it's not unusual to, right. uh, to okay. buy a bunch okay. of books and not read them. And I just find it hilarious that you're like, I got my book. I got my book. <laughs> And I'm like, you ain't gonna read it. <laughs> I got I got Obama's book. I got Cast. I got uh, Henry Louis Gates' latest book. I got a few books upstairs. I got a you know, but I'm gonna read them. This is gonna be a good year for reading for me. This is gonna be an awesome year for reading because you've already gotten off to a great start with the miseducation of the Negro. I love how there are like how many covers that I put on our IG at one point. I had Probably like, like 50, 11. Bro, right. you put a thousand different <laughs> covers. So you couldn't even tell what the book was at that yeah. point. So um, we're at February 28th, but we chose to read The Miseducation of the Negro for a very specific reading mm-hmm. uh, reason in February, which I hope most people already know, which is, of course, that Carnegie Woodson designed uh, February to be Negro History Week because simultaneously there's the there are important birthdays during the month of February. I think it is Lincoln's birthday and I want to say Frederick Douglass's birthday. Yeah, that's the story I've heard. I know that that is their birthdays, but I like it. Keep going. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's the the reason that he chose February. Contrary to popular belief that it was the shortest month of the year that we have uh, Negro History Week in February, that's not the reason. The reason is that he wanted to celebrate those two folks who had such important roles in um, in Black history. And so we have Black History Month during the month of February for yeah. that reason. Um, right. Carter G. Woodson also contributed a lot to just respecting Black history and Black culture by being president of an African-American history society and promoting the study of black history everywhere he went. His own education story is pretty phenomenal. Yeah, it's dope. I didn't, you know, I've heard, I've heard Harvard, you know, but that's all, I, you know, if you don't really study Carter G. Wilson, you don't really look at, don't really think to know the University of Chicago and what was the school, where did he go for undergrad? Uh, was that Kentucky or somewhere in Kentucky? Or I think so, he went to a pretty small school. To end yeah. up at Harvard was really surprising that he got that far in his um, educational evolution. Right, and in his day. So. Yes, and in his day, which was like, wow, to have been born at the time that he was and to have progressed as much as he did was absolutely phenomenal against all odds. So um, what was your initial reaction to the title of The Miseducation of the Negro? Um, you know, to, to look at the title in 2021, I thought about... Um, it made me really rethink about Lauren Hill's album, you know, Miseducation of Lauren Hill, and to realize that, oh, this is what she was talking about. And she's talking about being, uh, the feminism movement, talking about uh, some black pride and that sort of thing in her album. And that made me think about, oh, this is what she was really kind of, you know, conjuring up a bit in her album. Um, but Miseducation of the Negro really makes me think about my um, junior year in college, the first time. Uh, Azra Kwesi and Tony Browder's uh, Wealth of Knowledge was presented to me in the form of a presentation. Azra Kwesi came to Alabama A&M's campus and for the first time really gave me pre-Middle Passage history of Black and African people. And it made me realize from that point backwards, 
there was somewhat of a miseducation that I received. And from that point forward, I started to dig more into what it meant to be a black person, a black man, um, and, and grow from there. So I feel that I stopped being fully miseducated when I was 19 years old. Um, you have a particular point in mind that's interesting. I was thinking about the, the phrase miseducated to begin with and what that word even means to be miseducated. So when I think about um, the phrase miseducated, it sounds like you were in school and you had the formality of education, but the actual work of education didn't happen, that you didn't leave your institution smarter or better than mm -hmm. when you entered, but you actually left worse off. Yeah. Yeah, I, don't, I, I wouldn't take it as worse off, but I wouldn't take it off, take it as better based mm -hmm. on what I learned in, in my institution, whether it be the HBCU I attended or the Ivy League institution I attended or the big state school for, for that matter, uh, where I just picked up, you know, some formulas. I picked up some heavy reading of some literature that meant very little to me. I picked up uh, some theories about some things that uh, work in laboratories, but not necessarily work in real life. Uh, mm -hmm. So the, the real education uh, that we think we're receiving in high school and college in life is, is not um, the education that we're truly, that's truly making us grow as people and as a, as a people. So. Mm -hmm. When I think what about that part about the, um, was I ever miseducated? I definitely think that my math teacher in fourth grade uh, did not teach me fractions correctly. That I would point to as a miseducation. <laughs> because when I then attempted to try to perform fractions or manipulate fractions later on in the year, I didn't get it right. And so I'm pretty sure that that was a, a miseducation. In other ways, I was definitely undereducated in public school here in D.C. and not being thoroughly challenged um, or being taught to memorize rather than analyze. And you hear my rhyme, right? I hear you. I hear okay. you. Go ahead. I um, need to scratch with my turntable. My right, machine. right. Go ahead. Um, but in the preface, what Woodson says is the mere imparting of information is not education. And so I think that really applies to um, to my experience in some ways and to many ways, as we both know as educators, that a lot of black and brown children are educated and that they are just told things. They are just imparted things. And what's in right then and there is saying that's not education. And so if someone is just imparting education to you, mm -hmm. then you're actually being miseducated. Yeah, and let alone the fact that, you know, when he wrote this book 88 years ago, um, the type of education that was being imparted upon public school students back then, uh, specifically black students, black and brown students back then, is probably very similar to the education that's being imparted upon students in public school 88 years later. So that's even more of a miseducation because how, why has education not evolved in eight decades, almost nine decades? It's, um, speaks to a huge miseducation uh, that goes on when we just simply still teach some of those same pieces of literature, uh, focus on some of those same math formulas, same science formulas or whatnot, as opposed to figuring out what is really going to educate this individual and make this person more whole and a better functioning individual in our society. So that's... Um, I think we can offer um, an explanation as to why some of uh, many of our black and brown children in public schools are being miseducated. And so we know that education is the tool to become a functioning person in society. We know that- Hold on, I gotta, I gotta shout out my girl, Jokina. What's up, Jokina? She said, why has education not evolved over the decades? That part, that's right. We have reasons for that. I yeah. think that, and hey, Jokina, thank you for joining us. It's, um, I think we can say a couple reasons that strategically, if black and brown children are educated at higher levels and at the rate that they should, then we know that they're going to be more competitive 
in society. We know they're going to um, be able to start their own businesses at higher rates, be able to um, pursue home ownership at higher rates than we are. And most importantly, be able to challenge the status quo. Mm -hmm. Like the way that you and I have even been educated over the past six months through 2020, we've been able to ask questions that we'd never asked before. We've been asking questions about policing. We've been asking questions about environmental justice. We've asked questions about uh, about economic injustice that we just hadn't paid attention to before. And so if Black people and people of color and basically people from whom, for whom education was not an access had been educated at that level generations ago, then imagine what our society would look like. Imagine all of the norms that we would be able to challenge and how far ahead we would be as a people. And because we believe in scarcity, we also know that the people at the top would find that their position would be threatened. Right. So that makes sense in a very twisted way no. that that was um, not the case. Yeah. Did you have any disagreements about the book? I know we got, we're gonna talk for another 15 minutes, but any disagreements? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, you know, I walked away and we kind of talked about this uh, as you've been reading it during the month. I found Carter G to be sometimes a little shady. That yeah. he, the first. Let's just was, define your, what you mean by shady, too. You mean throw, he threw, he knows how to properly throw shade. Oh, for sure. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So, I, I gotta make that distinction because you say shady, like, when I hear shady, uh, I'm like, you would say you do, get, get on going. Oh, but. no, I don't think he's slim shady. Okay. No, no, I'm not saying that he's slim shady, but I do think that they, that he was definitely throwing shade yeah. at um, a lot of institutions that we think of as upholding the culture, at mm -hmm. um, priests and pastors and reverends. He was deeply critical of their role in in society, and he would sometimes suggest that they were pursuing um, money over faithfulness and imparting the word into the people that some preachers at the time would hear what other pastors, white pastors had to say and throw the same thing at mm -hmm. black communities, particularly black communities in the South and not resonate with them. Um, he even threw a little shade at white patrons of the time who would uh, make deals with select Black individuals in the community, hoping that the Black folks would then go on to the community and promote an idea on behalf of those white patrons. And then the white patrons, of course, would have to um, hope that their Black counterparts wouldn't reveal the truth of their intentions. So I think Woodson had a very critical eye. He was a very astute observer in society, but he wasted no time in holding people accountable for their uh, their manipulative behaviors or for their uh, nefarious intentions. So he was, and he was clear about that in the book, but his shade was so uh, well articulated. Yeah. Oh, well, I wrote some of them down, but I'm not going to find it right now, but very, <laughs> very well articulated. Very well articulated. Were you so like, I, I gotta use this? <laughs> yes, yes. Like, I'm gonna save this for myself and, and quote Cart. Shout out to Carter G after I say it. Um, so, my, I have one, I did have one disagreement in the final chapter. And I don't mm -hmm. know if there's a disagreement. I don't know if he was wrapping up quickly. But he said, the Negro needs to become angry with himself because he has not handled his own affairs wisely. Mm. Um, when I hear that, um, you know, yes, there's accountability. Yes, there's, you know, self -res be responsible. Uh, but I also heard a little bit in that statement and in that final chapter and one more time in the book, the kind of the pull yourself up by your bootstraps theory. Yeah. And uh, and one of my favorite notable quotes from um, Martin Luther King Jr. is that, you know, most uh, many of us were not afforded boots in the first place. Uh, so how can we therefore pull up ourselves by bootstraps? And so, you know, that, that one statement kind of stuck. Mm -hmm. I wish it would not have ended that way. I'm sure there's there's probably some research that I can do to, to give me more insight into what he was saying there because it was a, the, like the final few words of the book. Um, mm -hmm. 
but what did you have any thoughts on that or think about that at all yeah you know that last chapter was one that um caused me to think about woodson and how he may have been perceived in the black community because he was so critical for example, he criticized um, black people of means who then used their means to buy like fancy cars or to buy fancy clothes or somehow demonstrate their wealth. And that's an argument that we've heard, you know, for generations. But I think there's just more to the story and that throwing a dagger at someone because that's how they chose to spend their money isn't necessarily the best way to encourage someone to change their behavior or to uplift people. Yeah. And he did that kind of throughout. So in another chapter, the prior chapter, he, um, he, criticized, uh, he criticized business people for not having um, new ideas. He says, well, if you had thought about um, starting a pharmacy, starting a pharmacy with multiple locations, then maybe your business would have been successful, but instead you decided to replicate the business of someone who, um, who you had seen was successful and now both of you all are suffering because you're uh, taking business from each other. Mm -hmm. And he says, well, Rockefeller didn't try to be like Vanderbilt. They all came up with their, their own new ideas. And so that's what black people have to do. Absolutely. And that just yeah. felt kind of like, damn, Carter, <laughs> like, well, why you gotta go so long? <laughs> and, back then, and then, and that speaks a little bit to the bootstraps. I mean, these white folks have, have had, you know, abundant, abundance of resources. Whereas we're just trying to figure it out. This happens all the time where, oh, you're, you're doing this, uh, you're selling dresses. Oh, I like dresses too, let me sell dresses. Um, one thing I will say was when black folks do get resources, uh, this makes me think about it with the de deregulation of marijuana in California and some other states. Um, I've seen uh, Ice Cube. I've seen Sean Carter, Jay-Z. I've seen, uh, who else is it? Probably Snoop. But there are probably a ton of uh, folks of resource who have started their own mar marijuana uh, dispensaries or businesses. And I thought to myself, why didn't you people who are in the same industry, who know each other very well, why haven't y'all <laughs> combined your resources to really uh, take hold of that industry as opposed to, um, you know, splintering off and doing your own thing here and there? Uh, but that when I read that piece in Carter G's book, I, I think, OK, then, yeah, the resources weren't really ours as far as black community to have to really say, oh, I'm going to start a bunch of pharmacies. But now as we do gather some resources, we're still start sort of splintering off to, you know, being rugged individuals as opposed to a more communal type of people to really build something that could be a more powerful economic base. Um, but that also speaks to the decades of, of uh, conditioning you have in, in a society and a culture that is America. So, I think we should leave space for there to be other explanations for people's behaviors that on the outside, it may look a certain way, but we have to accept that we're not in those conversations as they're thinking about how they're going to structure their business deals. And there may be constraints that we're, that they are facing that we just may not be privy to. Yeah. And so I thought with a lot of Woodson's um, generalizations that there just has to be more to the story than than what he's seeing and yeah, it's critical. The book is, you know, it was, <laughs> <this> is <the laughs> book. So, so he could only say so much. Granted, the, granted the text is very small. Uh, it is a very, very uh, short, but very fruitful book, substantive book. But, uh, but yeah, you're right. I'm sure there, there's a lot of room for uh, answers to questions that I'm sure have been answered, um, but it also leaves you room, room to question of so what those answers are. Yeah, I think so. Ah, yes. Yeah, so what Jokina is saying, I think that's Jokina. Yeah. yeah. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Yeah. 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 I totally. Speaking of going fast and going far, so there was one quote, um, in vocational guidance where he says, education like religion is conservative. It makes haste slowly only and sometimes not at all. 
That's on page 158 in, um, in my printing. And I thought about that, that it has moved slowly to your point um, earlier about why education hasn't changed over time. And so if he's writing this in 1933, he's observed he was born in 1850. So let's say he was paying attention to education for, I don't know, 20-ish years and hasn't mm -hmm. seen that move faster. But what we know is that during that time period, there was no real investment in public education for Black children, that it was philanthropy that was driving a lot of the establishment of, um, of public schools, that we wouldn't have had public schools when we did until yeah. there was philanthropy. And that basically, I mean, philanthropic investments, and that basically means until you can convince someone of means to invest in education for Black children, the education system is not going to change. Right, and it's going to cater to the masses or to the, to the majority population or to white folks as opposed to catering to black folks or poor folks or folks who are under-resourced, under-resourced communities as opposed mm -hmm. to, yeah. yeah that, For their own self-empowerment. And so right. one other thing that he criticizes is the type of education, and this is where the miseducation part comes in, where he says, well, you're being educated, but what, you're, what you are being taught are outdated techniques. So you're being taught the old method of designing clothes, for example. You are taught the old method of repairing um, plumbing or machinery yeah. or mechanics. And so by the time you come out of yeah. this, um, this institution, your skills are obsolete. So that's part mm -hmm. of the miseducation. I did love, though, how, speaking of going back to Woodson being shady, I love how he threw so much shade on classical Western <laughs> education. Like, my man was mm -hmm. hating on Western education. He was hating yeah. on Aristotle, the Romans, Caesar. Mm -hmm. He's like, what use is this for you to study these the scholars who don't know anything about you, they don't know anything about your situation, and you can't use this knowledge in the communities in which, uh, in which you live. So really what you need to be studying are um, techniques that are relevant to today. So you need to have skills for today, and you need to be reading about either African civilization or about your people for today. So when he was saying that, that I could get with. Yeah, but yeah. It's, it's as if you know they they the curriculums were created to honor and and uh, hold supreme you know folks that looked like them or like like white folks, um, and and all that does is build pride because Billy sitting in that class he didn't care about Greeks but if if Greeks look like he does then that's going to somehow build his pride up or build build uh, his own self efficacy up uh, yeah. somewhat. But versus when. When Johnny, the, the the black boy, sees the same curriculum, zero relation, no way to relate to it at all. Um, but Billy gets that, at least gets one pigmentation relation <laughs> to to what what these people are talking about. <laughs> That's right, generations away from England, right. from Rome, not a bit Italian, but still feels pride. Yeah, and, that, exactly. and speaking of education not changing, that's still relevant to classical education today mm -hmm. at Columbia, where I went and where you went for grad school as undergrads. We had to read contemporary civilization, literature, humanities, art humanities, um, and all of those classes basically studied the Western canon, and we had to fight tooth and nail to actually get African studies and African American studies, Black studies, ethnic studies, in mm -hmm. and an honoring of Western civilization. And we actually still see that in the conservative movement in American politics today, where conservatives think back to the great democracy of um, of ancient civilization when they're talking about they're talking about white civilization and really uphold that as a standard and not think about the other civilizations and the other forms of politics and government that existed around the world yeah and speaking of education and we're, we're down to two minutes we can go as long as we want of course because uh, that's our business project. yeah <laughs> but i might run out of things to say but uh uh in what was our last our prior prior interview that we did with uh, Myron and Brandon 
uh, founders of the Social Justice School, this one quote from the book made me think of them immediately. Before we even finish the quote, uh, they came to mind, but it says, in talking about schools, it says, such work for Negroes must be done under the direction of the trailblazers who are building schoolhouses and reconstructing the educational program of those in the backwoods. Leaders of this type can supply the foundation upon which a uni university or realistic education may be established. Hmm. So backwoods meaning these antiquated forms of education that they're, they're pushing down the throats of, of the pupil, pupils. <laughs> but when we look at a social justice school, they're, build, they're, they're the trailblazers. They're building something new, innovative, and different from everything that we've been miseducated about. And, uh, and granted, we're going to learn some math, and granted, we'll learn some science, and uh, we'll be great readers, mm -hmm. but it will be infused with things that build us up as black people in that classroom, learning and taking in that knowledge. Your comment made me think about another quote from, um, I know we said we weren't going to do this, from chapter 14, but it's right here in front of me. And he says, um, but can you expect teachers to revolutionize the social order for the good of the community? Indeed, we must expect this very thing. So he's saying we have to hold our teachers to these really high standards and expect that they will revolutionize community. And that reminds me of efforts to recruit more black male teachers into the classroom so that they then can show by example, this is what educated looks like. It looks like me and I look mm -hmm. like you. So by proxy, you then look educated and they'll filter their education through the lens of their black male experience. Hopefully it will be a positive one in the way that they're understanding their experience and then can educate students in, um, I think the Bible says, raise them up in the way that they will go and they will not stray from you. Mm -hmm. And so when we expect that from our teachers and bring in people from our community into our classrooms, then we can be, um, and support them, of course, so you're not just having someone in the classroom for the hell of it, but you're actually training them and providing them the resources as we know as former teachers so that they can actually do the job that, that needs to be done um, in the best interest for kids. Yeah. Um, so any final thoughts about, uh, about the book? There was one thing I would say about Carter G. Woodson's writing style. I wasn't crazy about it. I, fi no? I found his style a little bit stilted and I found mm -hmm. that I had Um, I found that I had to read multiple times to really understand what the point he was trying to make. And when I read, I was mm -hmm. like, oh, that's what you were trying to say. You could have just said, you know. <laughs> yeah, he, he did. I personally liked his approach because, you know, I like to beat around the bush and then come out with this beautiful diamond of knowledge after I beat around the bush. <laughs> and that's kind of what he does. <laughs> that's kind of what he does. Is, and you do, I did have to be in the proper setting. I had to the perfect setting for reading. It wasn't just going to grab me and pull me in. I had to be total quiet, total focused, so I could really mm -hmm. see where he was going, what he was saying. But I, I can see why you would say what you just said. <laughs> it was stilted <laughs> and hard to read. Yes, yeah. I definitely felt like, wow, why is he taking six years just to, uh, to say that? I did appreciate as well that Woodson uh, did not um, idealize the, um, the Ivy League, that he did not have love for Harvard, for um, for Columbia, he called out, for Princeton, mm -hmm. for none of those institutions that had been established at the time. He was like, y'all ain't shit. <laughs> right. And, and he was, it was like, if, when I think it sounded like he was talking about Howard, Fisk, Xavier, and what other university was that? One other one, HBCUs. He's like, mm -hmm. if these newly established schools that are meant to educate Black people in any way emulate a Columbia, University of Chicago, or Harvard, y'all ain't shit. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, I appreciate that as well. We're, we're, you know, as Ivy League graduates, we, yeah. we know and understand that deeply. And I, I especially know that to have sat in several HBCU classrooms as well and sat in an Ivy League classroom to know that, no, it does not deserve these, these, uh, accolades that they re receive. They just happen to have a, a, a beautiful endowment 
and and are able to to get wonderful researchers and wonderful educators in their classrooms, but the educators and and, and uh, researchers in the classrooms of those HBCUs are, are equally as wonderful. They just don't have that endowment to back it. Mm -hmm. And he's also saying if the school is not teaching what black people need to know to manage and empower their own lives, then you ought to take a critical look at yourself. So whether you are, to use his words, a Negro teacher or a white teacher, the primary concern is that you're teaching what people actually need to know to move forward and to um, uplift the race, to quote unquote, to use um, an old phrase. So would you recommend um, the miseducation of the Negro? 100%, 100%. I, um, I don't even recall when I first read it. So it was probably one of those books I picked up because my dad and my mom had it on the shelf. Mm -hmm. And I read it, and, but not really understanding. I was, I don't know, might have been uh, ninth grade or something like that when I read it. And I think I probably picked it up again in college to read a piece of it for a class. But to read it in its entirety, um, I really appreciate it uh, as a grown man living in D.C. and who is an educator. Um, it's a great book that uh, anyone who hasn't read it in a while, pick it up again. If you've never read it, it's definitely worth the read. I think it's important to understand Woodson as a scholar and as a thinker and to get a sense of how people were approaching that really pivotal point in Black history. So um, Emancipation was 1865 and this book was written in 1933. So like a generation later, they're still grappling with how do we pull ourselves together? Like four million people have basically been dumped out onto their own, what's the best way to build a life? So what does mm -hmm. education look like? So I respect the questions that he was grappling with and the time in which he was, um, in which he was writing. But I, like I said earlier, I can kind of see some people being like, okay, Carter, thanks, but that was a little abrasive. Maybe you should be yeah. a little bit more empathetic to the struggle. Honestly, I don't think it's gonna be so. I I think it's more than some people. I think a lot of people, black folks, I think a lot of black folks will not be uh, super receptive to it because had not been for that moment when I was 19 years old, when Azure Kwesi came and spoke to me, mm -hmm. it had not been for me living in Washington, D.C., which used to be a chocolate city, mm -hmm. uh, for me to be an educator. For all of these reasons, I'm able to greatly appreciate Carter G. 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 Wilson's work. I think folks... Otherwise, not having those experiences or something similar to those experiences may not be able to appreciate it like I did, but I'm still going to recommend it nonetheless. And if you don't appreciate it the first time you read it, read it again <laughs> <laughs> until you can't appreciate it. Well, maybe I'll have to read it again because I didn't walk away loving his writing, but I also have to respect the fact that there were there are lots of insights that we have now about institutional racism, about structural racism, mm -hmm. about um, white supremacy. Even though I'm sure he knows he knew much more about white supremacy than than we will, but the way that we've been able to put it into the context of education is different. And so I found myself just wanting Woodson to be a bit more empathetic to yeah. to other people and to try to see more of the uh, the whole picture about a person's attempt to construct a, a better life for themselves. So maybe he doesn't necessarily agree with the way that they're spending their money, but there has to be a different way to communicate that message so people actually feel um, uplifted. But his criticisms around curriculum absolutely agree with his directive that you have to have a, a skill set that's relevant, that you should pursue business ventures, his recognition of the challenges that um, business owners would face. Like if you are a lawyer or a doctor, it may be harder for you to pursue a career because of um, segregation. I definitely respect um, those points. I think there was one question that I thought we should answer from the back because my version has these, it's my version. You pull out um, study questions? Yes, has study questions. Yeah. 
Um, I was going to ask generally if you thought that his argument was relevant. Like, relevant. Is, were mm -hmm. some of his critiques relevant mm -hmm. to today? Like, do they give us new insights about understanding education today? Yeah, they give us insight to understanding. I mean, the again, this book was written 88 years ago, and you and I both can agree on many points that he made in the book in 2021. Mm -hmm. So that speaks to the iceberg, which is the injustice of miseducating mm -hmm. black folks and folks in general. Um, mm -hmm. And how do we change that? We do know that uh, places like the Social Justice School, Brandon and Myron, are, are chipping mm -hmm. away at it. We, and then there are tons of other examples that we know of as educators and just in general that are chipping away at it, but it is indeed an iceberg. Um, so, yeah, that's why, to interrupt you for a second, that's why I thought some of his critique wasn't relevant because we've seen a lot of churches, for example, an institution that he was really critical of, we've seen a lot of churches then become pivotal in the civil mm -hmm. rights movement. So I think he died in, um, he was born in 1875, my bad, I think he died in 1950. Mm -hmm. So in 1960, we see the church really explode. I shouldn't say explode, but we should see the church's commitment to the civil rights movement um, really take national prominence. So the institution that he was so critical of becomes pivotal in um, achieving legislation like the Voting Rights Act of 1964. So that's why when I read some of his criticism, I think, yeah, I understand how that was really relevant then, but mm -hmm. now the things look a lot of different, but of course there are some things that are very much the same like we talked about. Right. And, you know, some of what came about in the 60s, you know, may have, his observations came before that Voting Rights Act. So there, there may have been shifts going on. He may have, may have sparked some fire under some folks when they first read the book 88 years ago to, to lead to some changes that were, that came about in those churches in the 60s. So, I would, you know, that's where further research is needed on my part, because I would love to to hear more review, more thoughts and reviews positively and or negatively about mm -hmm. how the book was first received and received in those first decade, decade or two after it was written versus, you know, how we're receiving it now, 90 years, almost 90 years later. Um, mm -hmm. That's my next uh, piece of homework, if I can fit it on my plate somehow. We have a comment from the lady killer who said this, that's not necessarily true. Can you say a little bit more, if you would type in the comments, what you think is not necessarily true so we can explore that a little bit. And let's see if they were adding. So while they are um, adding that, let's see if there were any last thoughts that I thought we should lift up. Oh, his service rather than leadership, I thought was a really interesting point where he says oh, I think that, they're, they're speaking to a comment, not to, oh, they're speaking to another I comment. Think that, I'm guessing that's what the arrows mean, uh, Lady Killer. Oh. <laughs> I'm still understanding how. <laughs> Me um, too. I might be wrong. They may have been referring to us. Uh, yes. Uh, first ever IG Live from the Death Project. But, yeah, exactly. Because a lot of it is not necessarily true. <laughs> because they're certainly based on... Um, what we are, what we've experienced. Um, yeah, as he talks Thank about... You, <laughs> okay. As he talks about service versus leadership, and he said there's actually more work that needs to be done than leadership, but I thought of, I thought of service and leadership as coming together, as being, you need one with the other, that you mm -hmm. definitely need. I mean, that's why we have the phrase servant leader. Right. Yeah, I had to be in... I wrote it down. It made sense one time. And I looked at it again. I was like, ah, it's not making sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the, the greatest amongst us is a servant, right? That's, didn't he, did he use that quote? Did he quote that? The greatest yeah, amongst so. us is a servant. He didn't say the greatest amongst us is a leader. Yeah. And, and so if you're serving, you're, you're kind of like, um, to be a servant leader, you are a servant. You just have yeah. to be labeled the leader. So, uh, yeah. I, I get what he was, where he was going. I guess you did too. I just uh... yeah, eventually. But he seemed to um, to think of them as mutually exclusive. That you're either the servant or that you mm -hmm. are the leader. Maybe he was interpreting them in very traditional ways. Some leaders do see themselves as mutually exclusive, though. So I think that's the problem. <laughs> 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 no, not, not personal. Just, 
most observations that are nothing to do with my personal. Uh... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, we cannot end without, I think, uh, this particular quote. Um, if you can control a man's thinking, you do not have to worry about his action. Mm-hmm. When you determine what a man shall think, you do not have to concern yourself about what he will do. If you make a man feel that he is inferior, you do not have to compel him to accept an inferior status, for he will seek it himself. And I thought that was incredibly um, profound. And we see that true in so many situations that mm-hmm. um, if you can train a person to think that they are less than, then they certainly won't uh, aspire to more ambitious roles, either professionally or um, assume um, a level of confidence that they would carry themselves with. So I think that's uh, something that a lot of that everyone really needs to consider is yeah. this notion that if you can make sure that people think what you want them to think, i.e., Trump, then you can control. Then you don't have to worry about controlling what they will do because they will go ahead and do it for themselves. Right. Yeah, and, and I think the follow. I think this is probably I didn't underline what you just said, but I, I underlined the part where it says when the oppressors once start the large majority of the race in the direction of serving the purposes of their traducers, the task becomes so easy in the years following that they have little trouble with the masses thus controlled. Yeah, he loved that word, traducers. Don't nobody use that word anymore. No, I, I, gotta, I need to look it up again. What is <laughs> no, that was like vitiate. Like, nobody <laughs> uses these words. He sent me to the dictionary multiple times, and I'm a whole grown woman still. <laughs> still looking at this so we've gone over a little bit um so what are we reading next what's our hold on let me see i want to try to tie this in okay go ahead do it what what do carter g woodson and uh toby chikoy chikoy do with me week say my man's name his name is toby his name is toby i've practiced it and now i can't even say it toby no i'm gonna get it right toby chikoy Dubin in Wigwe. Okay. What do, what do he and uh, Carter G. Wilson have in common? They black. That's true. Okay. Did you see the latest post that I did of his uh, um, the revolution? The revolution will be live. Did you see? You got to watch it. You got to watch it. Okay. Um, but he he has a movement going on, mm-hmm. and it's really he is not miseducated. Toby isn't. He is not. Oh, I at believe least, it. Yeah, at least artistic, his artistic presentation tells or reflects that he is not miseducated. And so when I look at his art and look at his work and look at what he's doing and to, to, be, to have been reading this book when a lot of his songs have dropped, um, it really made me think of him. It made me think of Nipsey Hussle. It made me think of Nas uh, and some of his tracks. Uh, uh, and, a, and a lot of, not a lot of them, but a few of the uh, artists that are out in pop culture these days. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know there are Carter G. Wilson's amongst us in pop culture. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so I, I just I just thought about thought about that today or yesterday when I, when he dropped that dope. The revolution, the revolution will be live. That visual, oh. all of his visuals are ridiculous. Uh, is that visual. connected? Is that connected to our next book? No, it's not. It's not. Yes, it's Women's History Month, so we're definitely going to have a woman as our author, or mm-hmm. someone who identifies as a woman as our author, and I believe. Yeah. Um, and so the book will be by Alicia Garza, The Purpose of Power. Now, <laughs> how we come together when we fall apart. Yeah, we are falling apart. Yes, we are. But we're also coming back together. Published in 2020, so this is a fresh read. Let's get, we need to get on it. Join us. We're going to do this again next month this time, uh, or at the end of the month. Mm-hmm. This is a 200 and how many page book is this? Page um, I don't know. My book, my copy is in the other room. Okay. Let me see. 289 pages. So I'm going to. It goes by fast. I believe it. I believe it. That feels like the Trevor Noah book. Yeah. Uh, which I went through for quite quickly. It's a really fascinating memoir. I read it last year. Um, 
and look forward to reading it again because it was so insightful. Um, Garza is both visionary, strategic. She has the heart of an organizer. Um, and what I think I really like about her is that she is of the people. There's no pretension about her or about her writing. So her writing style will be very different from Woodson. Yeah, but absolutely. the theme is still that um, you have to be well-educated to do good work. So well, thank you to everybody who tuned in to our first TDPB Reading Book Talk. Uh, you can see that we had a blast. As we move forward with our book talks, we are going to look for platforms where we can engage folks, where people can ask questions and actually talk. So whether that's on Clubhouse or if that's on Zoom or a Google Hangout, but we would love to actually see people and talk with people about the wonderful books that they're reading. Oh, and most importantly, buy your book from an independent bookstore. Preferably so. black owned. Yes, that's our tagline. <laughs> I say the independent bookstore part, and then Aaron comes in. Preferably black <laughs> So check out, uh, check out Mahogany Books. If you are in DC and want to shop black, check out, um, let's see, other black-owned loyalty books is a black-owned bookstore. Um, Uncle Bobby's is my favorite in Philly, and I'm rocking my Uncle Bobby's book, Save My Life t-shirt. It's a great black-owned bookstore, Harriet's Bookshop in Philadelphia. And of course, you can order from all these shops since we are still in a panini. Feel free to jump online, order those books. And we will see everybody on the 28th of March, which is Palm Sunday, but we'll probably still be at home. So if you are Christian and celebrating Palm Sunday, then stay online later on in the day. And if you are not celebrating Palm Sunday, then come on and read and talk about and celebrate a book with the DAP Project. Uh, resistance is a highway that has many lanes, and we hope that you find yours. Take care, folks. Peace.